Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. The bulk of this particular episode is my long conversation with author, poet, and feminist Janet Fraser. And since I just used the word feminist, I do want to go on the record and say that my concept of feminism has nothing to do with transgenderism, pornography, prostitution, Hillary running for president, AOC, or a female Captain America, basically everything that's considered liberal feminism today. I line up more comfortably with radical feminism, as in Mary Daly, Catherine McKinnon, and of course, Andrea Dworkin. As someone who eschewed college and instead embarked on a long, permanent journey of dedicated radical self-education, I find it quite illuminating that it took so damn long for me to truly encounter the work of Andrea Jorkin. I mean, I heard of her when I was younger because she's someone that would occasionally be in the news, but always in a negative way. And it's interesting to note that since I come out of a tradition of the left, the left often talks about their dissidents being marginalized. But I easily and naturally happened upon Chomsky, Asada Shakur, Howard Zinn, Guy Debord, Franz Fanon, Arundhati Roy, Edward Said, Angela Davis, Emma Goldman, Ward Churchill, Bell Hooks, and far too many more to name. But meanwhile, I didn't read Dworkin's book, Heartbreak, the political memoir of a feminist militant until 2015. And it just so happens to be quite possibly the most revolutionary book I've ever read. Now, this is not to say I agree with everything Dworkin has ever written, so please don't pull that tired old straw man from your tired old bag of tricks. Now, I mention all of this for context because my entry into radical feminism is how I met this, uh, the guest of this show, Janet Fraser. We met on Facebook. She was uh, somebody that was far more experienced and knowledgeable about radical feminism. And like many of the women that I met from that group, I learned an awful lot from them. And so the conversation we're about to have has mostly to do with her book, and you'll learn more about that very shortly. You'll learn more about Janet, and there is a ton of stuff in the show notes, including a more detailed bio and tons of links to follow up about her. For the record, part of our interview had to do with the fact that Janet has been living in Australia during the COVID restrictions, but that section of our conversation will be saved for a future episode. For now, this episode focuses on Janet, her book, and the experiences that led her to write it. And I will be back with that entire epic conversation after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. I'm back with Janet Fraser. She's the author of Born Still, A Memoir of Grief. And if you check the show notes, you'll find the note, you'll find the link on how to order that. Now, when I read Janet's book, this is kind of what I wrote to her, just to give you an idea of how it impacted me. I said, I just finished reading your excellent book. 
considering the subject matter, it was hard to say I enjoyed it, but I deeply appreciated the powerful blend of memoir and reportage. It conveyed a sense of heartbreak and outrage that engulfed me. Yet your strength and the strength of a few others around you is what I believe I'll remember most from the reading experience. Janet is here with us from Australia. We know each other for years on Facebook, and this is our first time talking. So welcome to Post Woke, Janet. Thank you, Mick. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, I'm so pleased to have you here. Um, I do want you to tell the listeners about your book, but I'm going to sort of walk you into that part by saying, when I type your name into a search engine, I find, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I find, yeah. well, I had to do a little research before I spoke to you. <clears throat> I found more than a fair amount of clickbaity and inaccurate headlines. So from my logical assumption is that someone is trying to make an example of you. Someone is targeting you in what can honestly be called a witch hunt. So um, from that entry point, can you tell us about the experiences that led to the writing of Born Still? Ah, yes. Well, thank you. Uh, it's it's a curious thing, actually, the, the Google thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the construction that I write about in the book of this woman called Janet Fraser, who um, I'm not sure I've ever met. Uh, <clears throat> sorry. Um, Yes, but people have uh, discontinued friendships with me on the strength of the Google search, um, even though they've known me for years. Wow. So uh, clearly it works. So uh, your point about bringing me undone, um, hunting me, uh, is, uh, yes, well spotted. Uh, I had a stillbirth at a very particular time in... Australian history for Australian women. Uh, there is an international obstetric campaign which has been incredibly successful in the US, uh, has also run in the UK and has run in pretty much every country where there's the possibility of profit to be made in birth. And I think um, the business of being born, Ricky Lake, might be something that some of your listeners have heard of or seen. Uh, but basically, that's the same obstetric setup in every country. So to go back a little bit, which the book does because the inquest did as well, I had my first child in 2003 and he's just turned 18, actually, and is beautiful. Um, and I planned a home birth for lots of reasons. I have always been interested in birth ever since I was a little girl and other girls had princess dolls who did weddings. My princess doll was always stripping off and giving birth. <laughs> and um, I had read Sheila Kitzinger, <clears throat> who was absolutely marvellous and who I once saw in the distance at a conference but didn't go up to because she looked tiny and overwhelmed. But I treasure having seen her. Um, and after uh, a totally normal pregnancy, I got to my birth and I was a normal first time labouring mother and I was slow about it. Anyway, for various reasons, none of them emergent, um, my midwife said, please transfer to hospital, um, your baby is stuck, you're going to need a Caesar. So I went to the hospital and... Thus, my career in birth advocacy was born well before my son, as it turned out. Wow. So the treatment that I received in the hospital was so profoundly terrible. And as a woman who thinks of herself as um, demonstrably white, uptight and middle class, highly educated, uh, <clears throat> very um, organised and prepared, right, I got to the hospital and suddenly became a number and the punishment for planning my home birth was profound and lasted um, until into the operating theatre where the staff were still icily cold and nasty and ended up apologising. Anywho, so I went home the same day as my Caesar because I wasn't having any of that nonsense 
And I thought to myself, there's a lot of birth activism going on in Australia at the moment, and that's great because we really needed it. The system is um, doing exactly what it's designed to do and it breaks women. And I thought, well, I think there's a place for a group that talks about what we then call birth trauma and we now think of as obstetric violence because there was no group doing that at that time. We had some mainstream um, organisations who worked within the mainstream paradigm, and I talk about this quite a bit in my book, um, and talked about improving hospital birth a lot, which is terrific. However, we also had what they said was the gold standard, which was midwifery in our homes, community midwifery, one-to-one, -one, independent midwifery. We have all different terms for this in the US and Australia, but you know, we're talking about home birth midwives, independent home birth midwives. So I could never see why we didn't tell women about this option when we spent hours and hours and hours trying to organise that kind of option within the limited parameters of what's possible in a hospital. So I started a group um, called Joyous Birth, the Australian Home Birth Network. And at that time, I also had another group called Accessing Artemis, which was for women to talk about obstetric violence. In the end, I joined the two together uh, because I thought that was really important that women who had had beautiful births, who are a tiny minority, um, knew what it was like for the women who did not have beautiful births but who experienced violence and brutality and callous treatment and separation from their babies. And everybody had to muck along together. So that's what I've gone with. The group is still mucking along together. Um, and, yeah, we've been around a while and we still do all kinds of different things. But And, it, and it's called Joyous Birth, right? That's right, Joyous uh, so Birth. So I can include a link to that also in the show notes. That would be lovely. Great. So, oh, hold on, there's a cat trying to pull over a plant. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't have that. That's not okay. And and that cat is Emma, Ellen. Ellen, I'm sorry, Ellen. Uh, please tell, right. please apologize to Ellen for me. I'm I'm, mortif I'm mortified right now. I think you would want to apologize to her. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Um. So I started this group, and it so turned out that at the same time it was kind of the final push of obstetrics in Australia to get rid of home birth. In fact, um, a few years later, the uh, at that point elected head of the AMA, who had recently been elected, was asked, what's your plan for your stint as the president of the AMA? And he said, to stamp out home birth. That's the first thing. Wow. Like, not reduce maternal mortality or make sure that um, vulnerable, isolated uh, First Nations women or refugee women have access to our excellent care in Australia. No, stamp out home birth. That was his thing. So, so let, let me interpret. So, so would would it, would it be fair to interpret this this insane prioritization of stamping out home home birth as some type of blend of misogyny and also a way to monitor? further monetize the birthing process and avoid lawsuits at the same time? Is it, is it a combination of that? Or how do you see it, What him, him being so bluntly upfront about that? Yeah, it's curious because uh, fewer than 1% of babies are born at home in Australia. So why would you care, right? Yeah, to make that um, your top priority. Yeah, extraordinary. It's pathological, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it was concerning. Um, and, uh, well, I think, I think the profit margin is super important, um, particularly since you can make repeat business uh, because of the way obstetrics manages birth, causes complications, and then predicts future complications as a result of the complications they caused. Um, and if you're really lucky, you will get a woman who lines up for that three or four times. And the profits to be made there are extraordinary. The okay. cost of healthcare, private obstetricians in Australia, is high. Um, 
And it, it's interesting you talk about lawsuits because almost every obstetrician gets sued. Almost no midwife gets sued. So <laughs> you would think insurance companies would want to go with the safe bet that they never have to pay on, right? You would think. You would think. That is definitely what notaries would suggest to them. However, uh, in the way of corporations who do love to clag together, uh, insurance was withdrawn from private midwives in New South, oh, in the whole of Australia, actually, in the whole of Australia um, around 99, 2000. So the midwives who were still going by the time I had my son in 2003 were there because they loved women, they loved birth, and they really wanted to do it, and they knew that they were safe in the main from being sued by their clients. So these were women who were really dedicated and, uh, you know, the, the women who stuck by other women, we really value their contribution. So time passed. I had another baby uh, at which the midwife um, became, uh, I don't know what happened to her. She got all scared and worried about me and dumped me from her care. And I had a panic attack and went into labour the next day. Ended up having my daughter at home. Um, she's also beautiful and 15 now. And so I wasn't feeling really terrific about our midwifery system at that point, <clears throat> having tried twice and been burnt twice. So when it came time to have my third baby, I thought, oh, God, I can't be bothered. This is too hard. I pour my heart and soul into supporting midwifery and women's access to midwifery. I've hired two midwives in my life and it went very pear-shaped. I don't have it in me to try that again. I don't want to experiment. I just want to be my own care provider and I will look after myself and I'm not going to dump myself and I'm not going to transfer myself to hospital without a very good reason. So that's what happened. And unfortunately for me, I was one of the 42 women that week in Australia who experienced a stillbirth, except mine was at home with just me and my partner and my friend, um, as opposed to in the hospital system where if I'd had a stillbirth, it would have been deemed completely unremarkable and nobody would have known about it. And in your case, it was definitely not deemed unremarkable. Yes, it was definitely deemed my fault. Uh, we do blackly joke sometimes um, in home birth circles that any stillbirth is death by home birth, uh, mm. whereas it's never death by hospital, even when it is. I so can imagine. This is not to say that any birthplace is a guarantee of outcome. It's not. The moment you are pregnant, you could lose that pregnancy. You could lose that pregnancy at four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, 18, 20, etc. Any time in that process, something which is alive can die. What we do know is that if you are in an obstetric model, and there are good studies on this, which I urge people to look up, the rates of stillbirth are higher than if you have one-to-one -one care with a midwife. So okay. if we are really serious about improving our stillbirth rates, that would be a good place to look. The other thing to remember with stillbirth is that while it is a personal tragedy, it is seldom related to something a mother has done or has not done. It simply happens. And in about 50% of cases, we don't know why it happened. I don't know why my baby died. I know what caused her death, but I don't know what led to that or why that happened. And, you know, I've had friends whose babies have died for the same reason in hospitals. This is not something you can predict. It just happens. It just happens to be really bad luck. Yeah. And for me, it was really bad luck because I was on everybody's shit list for having stood up for women's autonomy. At that time, we were in the middle of fighting all of these different laws and regulations that were being introduced into the Commonwealth Parliament 
uh, which restricted women's access to midwifery, which restricted midwives' access, as I said, insurance was already gone, but restricted midwives in who they could be and who they could serve. So the fight was on and this was absolute grist to the mill of those who wanted to show everyone that birthing outside of hospital was deeply irresponsible and led to death. So at this to to people in Australia that that are at least familiar with the birthing um, the med- medicalization of birthing your name was synonymous with the fight for free birth so once you had this tragedy happen upon you it was it, it was like the sharks began to circle at this point because like you said it was it was the they almost couldn't have asked for anything better for their mm. um, insane goals than to have it be you that they could target that's right. Um, and to be fair and clear, I have never really thought of myself as a free birth advocate. Uh, on my forums, the Joyous Birth Forums, actually the vast majority of women had midwife attended home births and there was this teeny tiny minority of women who didn't. Okay. And there were also um, probably a larger portion than women who chose to be autonomous consumers, there were women who went to hospital to give birth in whatever scenario that was, whether it was a birth centre or the delivery ward. So uh, the thing that I did was I didn't condemn free birth. So in order to be considered a polite, nice, mainstream, credible birth advocate, what you do is you go, I support women's choice, not that one. Hmm. And I can't do that. Because women are autonomous, entire, whole human beings who have a right to do what they wish with their bodies. And I can't tell a woman she shouldn't have a booked Caesar and I can't tell a woman she shouldn't give birth under a tree in her backyard. It's not my business. My business is does that woman have access to information and support which allows her to make the decision which is right for her? I seldom use the choice word. It's completely beaten out of shape and meaningless. I concur. So what I did was not condemn women who birthed without a midwife at home. And thus I became a free birth proponent running a free birth cult, which was news to all the women in it. (laughs) It's classic media sensationalism. So now I do want people to, to buy the book and to get um, hear the details of what happened next. However, for the purposes of the podcast, can you give sort of an idea of the next, the, like the immediate fallout upon the stillbirth and then the ongoing legal ramifications of it, just to, just to give listeners an idea of what, how, in how intensely they came down on you and what you had to endure for years after this tragedy. Sure. Uh, When my baby was born and was unresponsive, we immediately began CPR and my partner called Triple O, which is our emergency services. Anyway, normally what would happen under those circumstances is an ambulance would be dispatched. All he said was, baby not breathing at a home birth. That's basically the gist of his triple O call. Um, And we got three ambulances, two police cars and a forensic bus, I think, something like that. Um, Very unusual, all camped out the front before she was even declared dead in the hospital. So I had just given birth. I was naked. The ambulance officers walked into the room where I was still sitting in the pool doing CPR on the side of the pool on my baby and I handed my baby to them. The placenta was birthed almost the moment they walked into the room so the cord was cut and she was taken out of my arms and put in an ambulance and I was helped out of the pool and wrapped in a towel and I sat on my couch in the next room and then I realised I looked up the hallway of our house and there was a police officer coming down the hallway and I was like, what the fuck? So 
At this point, I'd been refused uh, a ride in the ambulance with my daughter. So I was sitting there with very little awareness of what was going on around me other than that I was still wet, naked, bleeding, and there was an armed police officer in my house. So I um, eventually somehow, I'm not really sure, ended up in the ambulance where I had no idea whether my baby was alive or dead. So on the way to the hospital, I was talking to her father saying, um, we're going to need to advocate for her because um, she was born at home, so they're not going to like that, which he knew. He'd already been through that with our first child and was thoroughly, thoroughly behind home birth after that experience. So, um, you know, I was having after pains, so I asked for morphine so I could deal with that, so I could advocate for my baby. Meanwhile, behind me, my home had been made a crime scene and my other two children, who were about five and two, three, she was two years and nine months, um, were taken out, put unsecured in the back of a police car and thankfully enough, driven to the home of a very dear friend of mine who is still a very dear friend. Um, and yeah, my home was sealed up and searched. So they searched the room where I gave birth, which was my study where I do all my best work. Um, and they videoed my bookshelves and they went through all of my papers and that kind of thing. So as far as they, you know, what were they looking for? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I understand the coronial process because, uh, you know, that's what kicks in. If there's an unexpected death at home, the police are called and they act as what's called agents of the coroner. So I get that. But I don't know what evidence you look for where it's pretty apparent that a stillbirth has occurred. Anyway, um, I understand that this happens, but, like, what could you look for, right? Yeah. They they took our video camera, they took our stills camera because this is back in the day when we had actual cameras, um, and they printed them out and all of that stuff was included later in the police brief, which was intended to condemn me as somehow having caused the death of my baby. So it was pretty horrible in the hospital and... And the police um, took her and she became evidence and they put her in the morgue and I was allowed to go and see her the next day. So that was kind of the immediate stuff. I was questioned by police in the hospital. Um, I, it began the train of treating me like dirt. I had absolutely no respect through any of that stuff. You know, normally women are allowed to be alone of with course. their stillborn babies. Yeah. Um, they have rooms in hospitals for the babies who are born still in the hospital and for the family to be together. I never had any of that. I was in a, a cubicle in emergency and then they took her. So <sighs> that was it. And then the legal stuff kind of kicked off after that and we did police interviews um including being questioned bizarrely because if no crime has occurred police questioning kind of becomes bizarre <laughs> so uh, the the SIO the senior investigating officer whose phone ring was staying alive he said things to me like um, most women, when they're pregnant, they hire an obstetrician and they go to hospital to give birth. And I thought for a moment and I thought, well, that's actually not true in Australia. Most women actually just front up at the public hospital and have their baby there ostensibly via mostly midwifery care but overseen by obstetricians. So there was no question. So I just said yes because I thought uh, he sounded like he had quizzed his wife over brekkie. We had an obstetrician, right, love? <laughs> like it was just sort of meaningless time marking, you know, At, but punishment, the punishment factor was always so high. Oh, Go it sounds like, being, like he was scolding you. Oh, always. Yeah. Being taken in by 
um, police into a, a, a custody room and I had to sit down and be cautioned before I was interviewed. And I'd just given birth two weeks previously, right, to a dead baby. And a lot had happened in that intervening time. And it was all so incredibly unreal that this was happening. I, it was like I had stepped out of my body and was living some bizarre Black Mirror episode if Black Mirror had existed back then. <laughs> I can only anyway, imagine. Anyway, time passed and a lot of other stuff happened, which is all in the book. Um, and despite what my partner, then partner, had thought, of course there was an inquest. He was very hopeful. Oh, there won't be an inquest. Of course there won't be an inquest. Meanwhile, I was watching the persecution of a midwife in South Australia and our uh, inquests were kind of running parallel and I knew that if they called inquests into births that she had attended, they would call an inquest into mine for sure. No other woman who had a free birth has ever had an inquest into a birth in Australia. You wow. know, babies die in every model of care. Mine happened to die during a free birth. Um, but I'm the only one who's actually gone as far as an inquest. Other women have been through the same kind of coronial process with police taking their belongings. Um, one woman I know had her computer taken and never given back to her. So, so just for um, clarification, what for, in case people are wondering, what is the significance of them calling for an inquest in Australia? What what does that exactly mean? They're they're that they're looking for or trying to do. Uh, when you call an inquest, the there are a few aims. How did the death occur? Uh, is there some institutional or other way in which this death could have been prevented? Could there be recommendations to improve the situation around that death in order that such a death would not happen in future? Okay. That's kind of what they're doing. Okay. There is also the option to um, bring criminal charges should information come to light during the inquest that that is the better or best option. So at that point, um, the coroner will refer the matter to police and the inquest will be shut down. Okay. And in your case and probably in other cases related to um, non-hospital births, the, this this is where the feeding frenzy of the media kicks in, where these these inquests are where they can uh, write their clickbait articles and and make sensational claims without any accuracy at all. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So day one of the inquest, the only information that got into the press was that of counsel assisting the coroner. So. Um, the person who had already decided that it was my fault my baby had died. So that was the only information that got into the media. And so much of it is inaccurate or misinterpreted, simply untrue. It didn't matter how much truth I told because I was already tainted. I was already... Uh, the, the the witch on trial, as it were, though I tend to shy away from that given that witch hunting was uh, far more horrific than what I experienced. So, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. I watched the media all sit there for that stuff, um, counsel assisting's opening address where she laid out all the things that I had done wrong which killed my baby principally holding political views was the problem. Um, and then they kind of emptied out for a while while they all went and put that online. And and that becomes the truth then, yeah. not just, you know, the state's version of me. That's the truth. So anything I said was then completely irrelevant. As, and a, then yeah, as media... I said, when, when, I, when I Googled you to before this interview, that quote-unquote truth is still the the top results of your name and no corrections no you know no adjustments and it's it's it stands as the as the alleged official record and it's indicative of of life in in a corporate media state but but i interrupted you please continue oh no i i think yeah i do i do think that's that's very interesting that it 
But, you know, the official finding was that she had died because of my sociopolitical beliefs and she would have lived if she'd been born in a hospital. So there's no correction to be made to the official narrative. <laughs> and no one was in the least bit interested in what I had to say. Um, so I, I learned how to be cross-examined, which it turned out I was really good at. Um, and good Thank you. I'm very good at not saying anything, believe it or not. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, my solicitor said to me at one point, wow, you know, you, you're the most truthful person I've ever met who never gets believed, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> it's a compliment of sorts, but, but it, one, one, that you don't, one that you don't want to earn. You don't want to go through this and earn that uh, kind of compliment. No, but yeah. no it, is, it, is, uh, it, it does require some uh, dedicated detachment to, uh, to not go along with the story, to see myself as separate from the construction and from the drama and from the story, because actually I am just a mother like all the other mothers whose babies died that week. That's it. There's no story yeah. here. Yeah. And so now the actual stillbirth took place in 2009, right? Yeah. So now I, when, I, when I looked you up, I saw articles still dating from 2012. That's so, when the inquest was. Okay. So, so this... How? Yeah, I had to wait three years. Now, I you can you can um, reject this question as too personal, but what was it like to be um, grieving with this simultaneous parallel event of knowing that you've been blamed and that you will be publicly on display and blamed and shamed from there? But meanwhile, you still have the completely normal human necessary process of grieving and mourning to go through. That's a really lovely question. So thank you for that. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for choosing to answer it. <laughs> I, I think um, the the gifts of grief are something that I have talked about a lot. Um, not all gifts are nice, right? Some gifts yeah. are a snow cone you want to flush down a toilet. <laughs> um, yes. But you are left with uh, the experience which you can then use in whichever way you see fit. Uh, I use it to share. I have no idea what it is like just to grieve when your child dies. I have no idea what that's like. I have a very, very close friend whose baby daughter, four-year-old, was murdered and we sometimes um, talk about how there's this weird mental hierarchy that you have in your head about, oh, well, that was really bad, but at least it wasn't that. Yeah. So, you know, my baby died and I live with the grief of that and will for the rest of my life, but it wasn't personal. She just died. It happens and it's my personal grief to carry, but it wasn't anyone's fault. Whereas her child didn't have to die, her father killed her. So, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of, we juggle these differences in experience, which at some point funnel down into that experience of initial grief which is like being flayed alive when you've lost your baby. And I have no idea what that's like without all of that stuff. So I had police interviews when really what I wanted to do was take my clothes off and lie on the ground and press myself into the dirt and scream and vomit and shit and bleed everywhere and say, my baby has died to the universe. But I had to go to court instead. And I had to parent other children as well um, and live in the world and try to look somewhat normal. Um, and therapy was great for a lot of that stuff. So, yeah. I'm happy to I, hear that. 
I, I think it would, um, it's almost feels like a luxury to me <laughs> to have a stillbirth and not have to go through that. Yeah, I, I didn't want to sound insensitive. And the thought was crossing my mind was, that, was there any sense of this being a blessing in disguise? And I really, really don't mean blessing, but I'm just using a turn of the phrase that the distraction from the intense grief that would have left you rolling in the dirt enabled you to maybe process the grief slower and less intensely. I, I don't know. It's, it's how does anyone, how does anyone even imagine this situation unless they're the one in it? But it's just, just hearing you describe it is, is heart wrenching, but then it's comforting to hear you say that, that you found some relief in this insane process. I found relief in Zen. Um, and I read a lot of books about Zen through those early weeks, a lot of um, uh, Charlotte Joko Beck um, and others. And for me, what kind of got me through, well, force of will is one of them. Um, feminism really helped uh, because I was able to depersonalise it because I know this is what we do to women. So yes. I just happened to be the woman in the headlights, right? So if it wasn't me, it would have been someone else. That's what is done to women who speak for other women. Yes. Especially in Australia. And the other things that got me through were um, not so much meditation, which I was simply not able to do, but I was able to read and I read extensively around Zen and grief. And a few things were really important. One was remembering how incredibly insignificant I am. Look at the universe, right? <laughs> I am less than a blip, less than a molecule on a blip, less than a whatever is smaller than that on a blip in the universe, right? The universe is so comfortingly huge, large, omnipresent, all-encompassing, and I am just one teeny tiny thing and even though I carry immense grief and pain and sorrow within me compared with the universe it is dwarfed suddenly something was larger than what I was immersed in and that was hugely comforting for me um, and I also read Zen writers saying things like wherever you are be there Yes. If you are in pain, be in the pain, and that's okay. So I would go, I am there, I am doing it, I am in the pain right now. And some days were hellish and I would cycle around and around with the, the, the images in my mind and, you know, once I called Lifeline because I was home with two very young children and I simply had to say the things to somebody I didn't know. Um, and, you know, I took to going to therapy once a week, which was wonderful and she was awesome um, and she even wrote a nice letter to the court about me during the inquest. So it it is really hard to describe it is always the zen middle path um it is very hard to describe how we live and we do grief and that's for any grief that we are doing experiencing doing um and i told myself constantly don't tell yourself stories about this just be in it just do it don't tell yourself the story about how you're being picked on and it's so hard and your life is so difficult because that doesn't help and so what? Just do it. Just be in it. Don't get dramatic about it. It was dramatic enough. <laughs> I didn't need to improve upon it by telling myself stories. All I had to do was do a day at a time and just not die. Easier, easier said than done, but these are, thank you for, these are profound lessons, hard-earned lessons that fellow blips and molecules on blips, no matter how, <laughs> no matter how minuscule we are, we will face intense hardship and sorrow in our life. And 
one of the great things about a community of blips and molecules is that we can learn from each other and and take solace in in the path that someone carved out like you just described a path a very unique path of of grieving in a very unique situation and it sounds to my ears that you have made some peace with how you personally were going to handle it and that doesn't mean that it was peaceful but you found a path that works for you which perhaps if i'm correct and it led eventually to you feeling comfortable birthing this book and saying it's time for me to tell this story it's time for me to share what i went through to share what women all over the world are always going through and to share the lessons i learned what i learned about myself how to grieve how, how to accept grief as a permanent part of your life and and that's why you know, I, I was so moved by the book and wanted to have you on. I mean, I wanted to have you on because I've known you for years on Facebook and, you know, consider you to be a long distance friend. But, you know, the book took things to another level. And I, I deeply encourage listeners to to order this book and 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 hear your story and, and contemplate it and contemplate it as a story of one woman, but also contemplated as a as a microcosm of of countless women for centuries as to what what happens to women in our culture. And um, it's, it's thank you for sharing this because I can only imagine that it may have been cathartic, but it probably was also painful at times to put you know pen to paper and tell this story again years later. Uh, I do occasionally in the book mention that I'm having a panic attack while I'm writing this. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I what what happened was a writer's dream, right? I gave a conference paper and I said to Susan and Renata from Spinifex, the radical feminist press in Australia, it's been around for 30 years now, those women are extraordinary. Um, I would really, really like it if you came to my paper <clears throat> and a few other women said to them as well oh, you should go to janet's paper you know it'll, it'll be really interesting anyway i gave the paper it was not like other conference papers it was a pretty extraordinary experience just giving the paper to be honest um and then straight after it two publishers came up and wanted a book wow. <laughs> a, a writer's dream indeed <laughs> yes it is it's all right it's never happened since don't worry it was a one-off um and so I went with the Australian option. There was an overseas option as well, but I went with the Australian option partly because I wanted to be part of Spinifex. Spinifex is a really important part of women's history in Australia, but all over, and also publishing history, micro-publishing, incredibly important contribution that those women have made. I concur. I concur. Thank you. So that was really important to me to go with them. And writing the book was... Uh, kind of hellish a lot of the time actually um people kind of think it was cathartic no okay. <laughs> it really wasn't <laughs> it was just pretty awful actually <laughs> well, well i hope you could take solace in the undeniable reality that it, it'll be cathartic for countless um people particularly women in in all walks of life just to, just to hear a story like this so eloquently and sensitively uh told that that um even, again it's like it's like goes back to that what we talked about the grieving process it, there is a silver lining in there that the hellish the panic attacks and so on while writing it you got this story out you did it in a way that that lived up to your values by going to spin effects but right now the ripple effects is are it's it's out of your control now there there are there are young girls right now that don't know they're going to grow up and read this book and be impacted by it. Like it's out there, it's it's gonna impact um, men and women for, for many, many years. And that's that's the that's the writer's dream, the ultimate writer's dream then to 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 leave this important kind of legacy and to turn something tra of a tragedy into a powerful lesson and, and a cautionary tale for readers. So I I'm, I hope I hope you can take some solace in that too, because what you've done is very important. My goodness, that's very lovely and thank you and I hope so. I I want all my work, which has been considerable and um, the vast majority of it has not been the book, it's been well outside of that, uh, to be something that has a ripple effect for women. So, yeah, it is, 
it is kind of handy being able to go, oh, well, you know, I wrote about that in my book. You should read it. <laughs> um, and, and so that, that there's, a, there's a slightly smug feeling about that. I, you know, I have a few copies on the bookshelf over there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it is the completion of a cycle. And uh, in, in birth terms, the completion of the cycle is what you're after. You don't have a guarantee of your outcome but we are programmed by evolution as birthing mammals to go through an entire cycle and complete that cycle. And whether that cycle ends with um, eating your placenta and settling down with your litter of cubs in the grass on the veldt, or it ends in an inquest and writing a book, you need to complete that cycle in order for important psychological and emotional stuff to uh, be fulfilled in you so actually having a chance to say what happened from my perspective after years and years and a decade now continuing more than a decade of misinformation and disinformation and plain lies about me some of which were almost amusing at times, I have to say. Like there was that time that the Mamma Mia website killed me off. Apparently I died in 2010 um, and I enjoyed myself immensely on Twitter when there was a Ask Mia hashtag um, asking her about, you know, what are the roaming charges likely to be um, for me tweeting you from beyond the grave. <laughs> Of course, they, they've never apologised. They did take it out. I was surprised that they'd even included it given how closely they followed the construction of me and were a really important part of constructing me because that's a super mainstream site that women go to in Australia. If you're in the mainstream, Mia Friedman, Mamma Mia, that kind of place is just the normal place to go. So they were getting all their information about birth and how dangerous birth is. Yes, that's why there's 7 billion humans. Um, <laughs> and uh, how how women should be treated if they step outside of the script, how we should be punished. Yes. It's coming very strongly from websites like that. But I'm dead. What would I know? <laughs> You're doing quite well for somebody from uh, doing all this from beyond the grave. Um, all right. So to completely wrap up here, I'm going to ask you a question within a question here where I, during your experiences, you have obviously been interviewed a fair amount. So I'd like to know, is there a question you've always wanted to be asked during an interview but never have been asked and if so please tell us what that question is and what your answer would be to it i think that's a lovely question thank you um because everyone who does an interview is like oh god damn i didn't say the thing <laughs> um i uh i have not been interviewed a lot i am um is still largely socially ostracized in this country and nobody wants to read my book. So um, there's a very small number of, of people have bought my book in this country because I'm such a frightening person. So I think you might be the fifth interview that I've done. Oh, and okay. My book came out nearly two years ago. Um, so it's not like I'm overburdened with people knocking down the door wanting to talk <laughs> to me. Uh, I think I would quite... At the time and through this and after the book came out, I would quite have liked people to say, are you all right? Um, there, there's kind of a perception because I am a very contained person and I am very publicly dignified and contained. Uh, I was criticised, unsurprisingly, through the inquest for being insufficiently grief-stricken um, in fact, my therapist wrote a letter to the court at one point saying Janet does indeed experience normal grief because I was accused of not caring that my baby had died. Um, <sighs> and then I wrote the book and that was lovely and I had this beautiful launch and everyone was so kind and sweet and, in fact, a friend from... Um, 
Virginia attended, which was lovely because it was like four o'clock in the morning for her. Um, and yes, I think people people are lovely and people are kind and people kind of struggle with the book about the grief as much as they struggle with the grief. And so I don't say this to be critical of people. I say this to in the hope of expanding the conversation around that stuff. And are you all right? I realise that's a closed question, but how are you is the universe of questions, right? Yes. Like, how the fuck do you answer that? How are you? <laughs> oh, which one of my experiences do you want to hear from in this moment, right? Are you all right? Well, I could say yes or no. I could say kind of. Um, I could say, well, you know, I'm chatting to Mick and that's cool, but I am aware that my hands are freezing cold on one of our few summer days right now because whenever I talk about this stuff, despite it being 10 years this year since the inquest um, and then, you know, 13 years since my stillbirth I still experience the physical uh experience of shock grief trauma which all lives in me all the time and I'm a complicated person um, as a result though I do my best to make life simple for those around us um, and I think it's really important that people know after a massive loss like this and then the resulting trauma that was heaped on top of what was a perfectly ordinary loss is that in any given moment you are going to experience 5,000 different things. So when my book came out, people said, you must be so glad. And I was like, hmm. not really. <laughs> There's a little part of me that is glad. There's a big part of me going, what the fuck? Why is this even happening? There's a part of me going, oh, God, people are going to read about it now. There's a part of me going, oh, God, people are finally going to actually read what happened. And most importantly, what they might do is talk about women's lack of autonomy in our society. And that's really the conversation that I want people to have. I want people to talk about grief and I do my best to talk about death and dying whenever I'm able to because I think it's really important. We're all going to do it. We'd better talk about it. Let's not fuck up more people by not talking about it, right? I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Um, and I think that those conversations around the deep, deep control of women by misogyny from without and within because we police ourselves and each other is what I really want people to talk about. So am I all right? Sort of. I will go and have a cup of tea after this and warm up my hands and I will probably shake a bit because I normally do that. It's not personal. I will probably shake a little bit. Um, and I'll take my cup of tea outside and stand in the sun, which is the second sunny day in a month that we've had here in the middle of summer, and I will be all right. And as you said before, with the with the Zen studies, you'll be all right right here and right now, which ultimately is what what, what your goal is. Is that's all you can that's all you can be is all right right now in the present moment. It's all we have, so let's just be in the present moment. Well, that's a that's a beautiful. Uh, question and answer back and forth to yourself. And I do want to say that I very much, of course, wanted to talk to you about your book, but I would like to consider in, you know, sometime later this year, having another conversation where we, where we can center and focus on the concept of women's lack of autonomy, where it doesn't have to be feeding off a particular event like a like a book or or the COVID restrictions. It could it could be a conversation that's more general because women's lack of autonomy is always timely. Like it's it's not something that's tied to a headline. It's the ongoing issue. So I would um, I've enjoyed this conversation, and I would imagine. Um, very much enjoying and learning from that conversation, hopefully in the not too distant future with you. 
That would be marvelous. I, I look forward to it already. So Janet, this has been a, a pleasure. We have been we have been exchanging messages and niceties on Facebook and and I was so looking forward to chatting with you. I, I am honored that you took the time to speak so personally and deeply about a topic that is understandably difficult. And as you said, is you you know, when we hang up, you're you're not gonna just immediately go back to your business. You need to process what you just talked about. And I'm honored that you chose to do that with me. And I uh, I'm urging people to to please purchase your book, to to learn from it, to to be inspired to ask questions about yourself based upon it. It's it's a powerful, powerful uh, document. And I really do believe that people um, men and women, young and old, can can garner really powerful lessons from it. So, thank you so much for your time and your, your humanity, and and for for just sharing so openly in in this forum. I really deeply, deeply appreciate it. Thank you. I was thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, on that note, I will be right back with my story of the week. For my story of the week, I'm going to kind of sort of stick on the radical feminist vibe that has colored this episode in that the story, which takes place in the mid-90s, right before the internet took over everything, the story is loosely connected to the pornography industry and the pornography consumer in the story ends up looking rather foolish. But let me begin by saying that in my neighborhood and probably all across the land of opportunity, Playing the lottery is not just state-sponsored gambling and a cleverly disguised tax on the non-rich. It's a lifestyle choice. It's practically a belief system. Lotto is the American dream. They use coercive advertising to convince the poor and middle class to accept a voluntary tax by promising, promising them a chance to be rich like all their media-created heroes. Side note, it's an awesome victory of propaganda that most oppressed Americans strive to be exactly like their ruthless oppressors. Now, before you get all righteous on me and drone on about lotto money funding education, bear in mind that at least two-thirds of lottery revenues go to administrative costs and prizes. The remaining billions aren't exactly inundating the schools either. Lottery states spend less on education on average than non-lottery states. So where does the money go? Here's an example. The New York State Lottery took in just about $10 billion in the year 2018. 60% went to paying off prize winners. Then there was a cut to the lottery dealers, plus all the operating expenses. And when all was said and done, $3.37 billion was left for education. Actually, aid to education. This loophole means the windfall isn't buying books or paying teachers' salaries. More likely, lottery money would go towards something like paying attorney's fees for a construction project near a school. I mean, technically, school buses may drive on a road that was repaired, but a dollar and a dream? Considering what passes for education in this country, I sincerely doubt it. So, all that said, it was completely out of character when I randomly played lotto all those years ago. I was married back then and thus chose six numbers that correlated to important dates from my wife at the time and me. And dig this, four of those numbers came out. Instant karma being what it is, our prize was $519 and 519 was our wedding anniversary. Go figure. We went down together to a now-defunct local newspaper stand to collect our fortune. The Muslim couple that owned the store seemed sincerely gladdened for us. They were very sweet, but took forever to count out the money, mostly in $5 bills. That's when this chonky white guy walked in, maybe 27 or 28. He looked over the situation and apparently gauged that we were about to vacate the premises, so he strolled to the back to pick out a porno movie to buy. The way it worked back then in the pre-internet days of yours was that you pick out a flick based on the box and you bring the empty VHS box to the cashier who finds the matching video behind the counter. They had to do that or they would have been wiped out in one afternoon. Anyway, the dude reached the counter and realized too late that the owners were going to count and recount our riches. 
right on cue, two other guys walked in and stood right next to him. So there he was, standing in full view, holding a box for a movie called Why Did You Fuck My Mother? The full-color cover photo displayed a hefty naked woman, maybe 45 years old, astride a happy young buck. Already giddy from winning some much-needed capital, my wife and I were simultaneously watching our money being counted and suppressing some serious giggles. Two more customers entered, bringing the audience up to six. The Muslim woman pulled herself away from counting fives and took the box from the guy. She looked at the cover slowly and carefully before reaching down under the counter to find the correct video. With a subtle smirk, I think, she showed the mortified young man the video to verify it was the right one. He meekly nodded yes as the growing crowd, not so silently, but justifiably, judged him. The woman collect, collected her $16 for the video. My wife and I left with our $519 and we left all the way home. So thanks for listening to another episode from Post Woke. If you haven't subscribed, this is the perfect time to do so. If you haven't become a paid subscriber, this is the ideal time to do so. Either way, it's always a good time to share the links and always a good time to keep your guard up. <music>